Big Fluff. Hobo Radio, the official podcast of HoboTrashCan.com. You can share your thoughts on the show anytime by emailing Joel at Murphy's Law at HoboTrashCan.com. Soy Luders. Estáis escuchando Hobo Radio. I'm here because I'm a hobo woman. And now, your host, miniature dog enthusiast, Joel Murphy. Hello again. I'm Joel Murphy. This is Hobo Radio. And what I have for you today is something that uh, is really meaningful for me. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. You know, I've been fortunate to do a lot of interviews for the site, but this one is really special. Uh, I got to sit down and interview someone who I know as my neighbor, Paulino, who, uh, you know, Molly and I always talk about, like, when we moved into this apartment, one of the first things, you know, the first week that we're there, like, we're we're unpacking our stuff, you know, we're, we're getting settled in. Paulino comes up, he introduces himself, he says, you know, if you need anything, let me know. If you, you know, I, I can help you out in any way. If you need to borrow my car, this guy who we knew for like, you know, 10 seconds offered to let us borrow his car if we needed it or anything. And he meant it. It was so sincere. He's a guy who drove us to the airport like right after Christmas so we could fly home to Baltimore. I mean, the the level of just kindness and sweetness from him uh, always really meant a lot and, uh, you know, surprised us because Molly and I are kind of uh, you know, people that would probably tend to keep to ourselves and, and, you know, be cordial to our neighbors, but not overly nice. But we were always excited to see Paulino and Lourdes. And, uh, you know, they just always brightened our days. And the longer we lived here and the more we got to talk to him, you know, we started to, to learn a little bit more. It, it turns out that, uh, you know, he is in kind of a similar situation where both he and I sort of bonded over some health stuff with our significant others. And that was always sweet. He always would talk about us as being uh, primary caretakers. And, uh, you know, it was always just very supportive and very sweet to, you know, he would ask how Molly was doing and I would ask how Lourdes is doing. And, you know, just always such a lovely guy. And then, you know, over time would start to talk a little bit about his, uh, what he had done for a living. And, and over time I learned that he had worked for Disney and, and, you know, that's how he made a living, like working on every iconic animated Disney film that, you know, I grew up watching and all of this, you know, just over time. And, and he's become a big part of our life so much so that, we joked for a long time that it's going to turn out that he's not even real because this man is too lovely and too amazing that, you know, our joke is always like, there hasn't been anyone in that apartment for 30 years, you know, like, but to prove that he exists and to take advantage of, uh, 
the fact that he and Lordis are actually uh, getting ready to move. They're they're gonna move to the uh, Canary Islands, and uh, we wanted to just take an opportunity to to spend a day with them and to to sit down and really get his life story. And I knew it was gonna be interesting uh, because I knew the little bit. I knew that he had been, a, uh, you know, had worked in animation. I knew that he has done. Uh, you know, these like Asian films that he gets recognized for sometimes like he's sort of stumbled into becoming an international film star and uh, just he's traveled around a lot. I knew it was going to be interesting and it ended up being so much more fascinating than I could have possibly imagined. His his life story is is so compelling and so great. And there's so many little details in it that I love. And it was a great chat. Uh, where, you know, he invited us over to his house. They gave us food. They gave us wine. Like it, it was such a great just day that I will treasure. But I also think that all of you will really love this interview. I think it's something special and I think you guys will hear that. So without further ado, please enjoy this interview with Paulino. So I want to start, I want to talk about little Paulino. I want to talk about you as a kid. Mm. Yeah, let's, let's start there. Like where, you know, tell me about growing up. Like, what did you want to do? You know, did you, did you have an idea of like, I'm going to grow up and do this? Or what, what is little Paulino? What was he like? Um, grew up in a small pueblo. Great name, Recuerda in Spanish. In English it's Remember. Remember. Imagine that, a pueblo named Remember, about 400 people uh, by a, the riverside of one of the six biggest rivers in Spain. My father, Labrador, Labrador is a man that literally he did uh, with two, a pair of mules, open the earth for planting wheat, barley, and other grains, uh, uh, the Labrador is the, or Campesino, is a man of the land that ha goes on making what he needs for his family and animals from what you'll say today in more loose English, scratching the surface of the earth, in the province of Soria. The coldest province every year get the records of the coldest in Spain. The winters there are really tough. My mother said that I was born... February 22nd, and it was snowing. And she regret that day only uh, because my grandmother told her when she just had me, the pain that must, women must feel giving birth. And she said, well, hot chocolate. And my grandmother looked at her and says, no, no hot chocolate. That's just tinted water. You'll get some soup. <laughs> To the day my mother um, died, she remembered that so bitterly that after giving birth to me, she could not have hot chocolate after birth. Story of <laughs> February 22nd, 1953, the same year that Mount Everest was climbed and the first year that Playboy hit the streets in America, this little boy was being born in Castilla, Spain. 
<laughs> and so did you imagine that you would just follow in your father's footsteps? Did you think, what did you think you were going to do? Like, did you just think you'd stay in that town and you, you do what your father did or, or what was your, as you grew up, you know? Um, born in the Pueblo up to 13, uh, the time that you begin to define where was this thing called life and what am I doing? And I can see my eyes looking over the horizon uh, and thinking, oh, the world is just at the end of that mountain ridge and perhaps a little bit more, and that's the end of the world. When I was six years old, five year old, seven year old. And um, my father looked around at his family, two girls, three boys, and uh, it was the um, countryside being taken over by big uh, John Deere and Caterpillar and all those huge harvesters, and the mules were no longer the thing. My father kind of quietly left the Pueblo to get a job in Barcelona, one of the big industrial cities, and start working in construction, put down payment on a house, came back several months later to get all his children. Me, I was 13. My brother and sisters, two years older one, another one year, another two years, another one year. We were born in uh, four of us in, in six years. Uh, and the last one, my little brother, that born 13 years later than me. Um, so he took the whole family to being sweetly exploited by the very able business people of Catalonia, with the Barcelona being today the so very successful city. And they were very happy to get country folk from all over Spain for factories, for offices, uh, for construction. So my father quickly uh, see that the, all of us, my sisters, got to sell tickets into cinemas. I went to the cinema. Uh, <laughs> God, day and night, you, would, you could say double features, triple features sometimes. Um, free. My sister will just smile and uh, point the finger, go inside the theater. That's probably where I work my connection to films and Hollywood, and I could never entertain that. I'll end up working at Disney. Uh, what I did there was at 13, I quickly started working on a factory and then to an ad agency um, doing errands for them. And then in the evening, going to a school to finish my high school. Um, so I was already uh, double jo two jobs and in the evenings to finish high school at 13 years old. And that went on for a few years until one day I just said, no, no, no. There's something running here. Um, at that time, the great films, Easy Rider, film Woodstock, portraying the great Woodstock Festival, um, the great play, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, all those three fabulous cultural items were banned by the dictator, Francisco Franco. And at that point, I was 16, 17, and I hitchhiked to Paris because it was not prohibited to see Jesus Christ Superstar on the theaters or Woodstock or Easy Rider on the cinema. So hitchhiked all the way to Paris with a little bit of a strong, really bad uh, cognac 
in case the hitchhiking did not went smooth in a winter day, which it did happen to keep myself warm. <laughs> and I end up in Paris in a, uh, the address of in La Sorbonne, the university, a fellow Catalan learning uh, there from rich parents, but somehow I got that address and he let me sleep on the floor of his room while uh, then I went every day for several days to see the magic of that fabulous city of Paris and the culture without censorships and compared to Spain. And uh, that's, that was the big turning point in my life. I returned to Spain to never really return to Spain, realize that oh, at the other side of the Pyrenees, there's another culture that speak different. They treat each other, in my belief then, more kindly because there I had to be on the road and people were kind to give me push forward, forward to Paris, sometimes leaving me money for, they feel that I, I should, that probably I was down and out without any money. And I did have a little money with me, but anyway, returning to Spain was to really revise like, no, no, there could be life different than working so hard in the farm, working two jobs in Barcelona, and uh, uh, then... Uh, Soon after, I hitchhiked, pay the fare for the ferry to London and start living in London, working quickly there on one in a night casino, being the footstool boy for the rich ladies to rest their feet. And they give you nice tips and a nice petting to the little boy <laughs> from Spain. Um, and then uh, on a gallery that did Christmas cars that they then exported to Denmark, Holland, Belgium, Scotland, made my money there to um, buy my first 747 ticket from London to Tel Aviv um, in Israel, because I heard that there is such a fantastic thing like the kibbutz. And in the kibbutz, you live free from money, free from the tyranny of uh, work, and um, I went for that ideal that many adolescents, we, heart, we, um, like we feed ourselves with the, a better life, less struggles, um, an ideal world where money is not the protagonist, but relationship to people and the land. So I ended up in uh, Tel Aviv, and from there they directed me to a kibbutz in Israel. I did arrive in Israel, uh, lied myself, uh, this dream, see it coming through to work in a kibbutz, no money, just work in the land, be close to people, an international set of people, other dreamers like me, adolescents, uh, were uh, there a few months, met a lovely girl from Tennessee, an Americana, uh, and then through her move to work in um, the storage of um, a bookstore in Tel Aviv where we satisfy orders for different bookstores all over Israel. And on the corridors where we had all these books, this sweet girl and me hands and kisses and all the sweet stuff of adolescent. And uh, I realize now looking back that it was how my English went from loose words into full phrases. Uh, from this romance I have with this lovely girl, 
her father was a dentist, an Americano that left America for that, which has so much meaning for Jewish people here that want to have a second go in their life in fresh and young Israel. Um, so um, soon we were in bed, and in looking back, I realized that my best English, my English got really well grounded in bed with this girl. So <laughs> anyone who wants to learn a second language, find yourself a girlfriend in Tokyo or a Thai girl in Bangkok or a senorita in Buenos Aires or Madrid, and you come out uh, with full phrases before you know it. Mm. It's, good. it's practical advice. Like. Mm. Oh, yes. So, all right, so at this point you're sort of, you're discovering a larger world in a lot of ways, you know. But what, so you're, are you still just kind of bouncing around? Like, did you have, were you working towards something? Or what was you, what uh, was your drive in life? Or what were you like, you know? Uh, films is become something possible where to uh, get wages from. And in London, the people I work for the, our gallery, they said, oh, we know a gentleman that has a studio in Tel Aviv, has an editing room, you could work there. I went, they had finished a film, there was no work for me, but I realized I could knock on the doors of a studio, an editing room, especially in, in that studio, and talk to somebody, and they'll say, well, not now, but please uh, come back to us, we start in a new film in such and such time. So I realized that it's something real. Somebody talked to me, and my interest in was acknowledged as perfectly legitimate way to go forward. Uh, after Israel were thin with war thin with the uh, and the visa also was limited, I went back to Spain and hung around with my friends. This was. Um, 63, um, 60, I'm talking 1967, 68, 69, um, 17, 18 years old, just the top, top of the expression of the hippies and the new way of going, looking at life from this new generation. Uh, so uh, hung around with students. I was too poor to go to the university, but they allowed me because by then I could translate to them the new albums of Leonard Cohen or the lyrics of Pink Floyd or King Crimson or Cream. So I was welcoming the circle of those students of fine arts school as this uh, <clears throat> dude that doesn't go to university, but is, it comes handy to translate us all these lyrics. And soon, in just a few months, I see that they were doing... Um, Work for Hanna Barbera, a subsidiary of Hanna Barbera, uh, did line up a contract with a studio in Barcelona, doing Saturday morning cartoons. This is a very simplistic form of um, cartoon, and they say, "Hey, when I show an interest, you can do this too. Come to the studio; they are training people." Oh, I went and just fool around with it, and return it almost uh, barely started because I realized, "What is this?" Uh, and then at the studio say, no, you have to, you, we'll give you an easier scene, take this. And they insisted, they pushed me. And my rejection of something unknown that I felt that I was not prepared, didn't know anything about. After um, 
responding to their persistence, uh, the, I could see finishing full scenes and they could see that I was really advancing real fast in a very few weeks. And before I knew it, I had salary and I was work, working for animated movies for Hanna Barbera in Barcelona. And you had never, you didn't have an artistic background or anything. No, but the studio gave me uh, really good training that after that initial rejection from me, that like, I don't know, what do I know about this? But soon they, I knew I could do it and they knew I was really good, better than other people that were training. So it became a reality and um, probably about a year or so we worked in these projects and uh, the Americano that was connecting the job from Hanna Barbera to the studio in Barcelona, noticed that I was really getting good, good in animation. Say, I give you a number of a few studios in Hollywood. You knock on the doors, tell them you come from me and you can be making a lot more money than here. And you're ready. So I uh, managed to get a tourist visa, lying to the American consulate in Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> that I was coming here as a tourist, showing them a fake contract from a film studio that I was required to return uh, quickly for a starting of a movie. And the Americanos bought into it, gave me the the visa, arriving in Hollywood with, a, I believe, a $200 in my pocket. Oh, wow. I arrived here and knock on a couple of studios. The first one says that they had just finished a job. The second one, was doing subcontract for Warner Brothers, Roadrunner, uh, Bugs Bunny, Yosemite Sun, all those classics. And the lady at the studio says, oh, so you say you can paint, trace, and do special effects on this type of scenes, and please have this scene sit and uh, bring it to me when you finish. A couple of hours I said, sit, I brought her the job. She liked it. Said, you work for me from tomorrow on. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm tourist here. Said, it's okay, I'll help you. Line up your uh, legal papers. For now, I'll just pay you straight cash. Well, thank oh, wow. you very much. <laughs> and uh, wow, I got myself a used bicycle and I will pedal several blocks uh, from Santa Monica Boulevard down to Melrose to a small street called Waring Avenue and... I was one of her team of about 18 to 20 people that we dealt with these uh, um, jobs that she subcontracted from Warner Brothers. She did, we did also for Peanuts, a special for Valentine's Day, for Christmas, a special from Peanuts. We did those you, beautiful... You worked on the, the Christmas, the Peanuts Christmas? The Peanuts Christmas and uh, Valentine's Day specials that will come from that firm. And uh, so uh, it began what now is, um, I work for 17 different studios moving from project. It's the nature of, of, the, of the business. You finish a project and you move on to another and to another and to another. And before I knew it, I was uh, well known, established a reputation, very reliable that my work did go to camera and did not come back from camera because of mistakes and have to be redone, the key thing to be to establish good reputation in animation and uh, I was uh, happy in in this jumping from one project to another and seeing my colleagues mm, say hey you're not going to request job at Disney I said no all I see that 
you guys get rejected. Nobody rejects this uh, <laughs> Castellano. No, no. I leave the jobs. When I'm finished with something, I leave it behind. I move forward to other things. Um, so I never uh, request, uh, you know, send my resume and look for a job at Disney. And uh, one day I got the surprise that I was returning from a trip that I took to the 4th of July. As a matter of fact, now we are close to the 4th of July, 2017. That was the 4th of July, uh, 1984, on um, um, Grand Canyon with the Sierra Club. I was lucky to be the last person on a team with all the permits and whatnot that went down the river. And then they pick us a rescue type. A helicopter took us from the from the throat of the of the Grand Canyon, Colorado, as it gets narrower and narrower. Re a great experience. Returning to LA, and in my mailbox, a letter from Disney scratched my head and says, "What?" I never <laughs> called these people. Opened it, and they were inviting me to work in the Black Cauldron. Oh wow! I thought, I'll think about it. Huh. <laughs> I thought about it a few hours before the next day I went to the studio where I was working and said, hey, Disney invited me to a movie. So they said, on what do you work for us? Hello, is Disney inviting me? I never knock on their door. They are knocking <laughs> at my door. You hear me? I'm working for Disney starting next week. So please close uh, my wages where we are at now and... Uh, you guys being wonderful, but Disney. <laughs> hmm. and, and what did that mean? I mean, like, what was, was that just like, that was the Holy Grail or, you know, was, um, what, what was so important about Disney? Um, it carried the weight in the industry as they are the very best. They respond to quality. They don't push you around. By that time, I knew what it was, it worth. It meant to work for Hanna-Barbera, Saturday Morning, Limited Animation, and uh, Hurry, Hurry, Hustle, Hustle. The um, producer wants to shine and see how quickly it's done, another hour of animation, and it was coming uh, to people in the industry at Disney. Once they know they can trust you, nobody push you. What they want is that quality comes out of your hands. And that sounded like a wonderful environment to work for. Uh, so, and that myth of uh, that visits the lives of so many million people all over the world. Uh, and to be invited by such a firm like you... Mm, so, yeah, that's more or less a curiosity on my part and uh, appreciating the privilege of being invited. And then let's see what's going on here. What took place then is that they monopolized me. They saw that I was really good on what I was doing for them. And uh, in a, a few years, they left it clear that I'll have job with them forever, uh, as long as I wanted to work. And it, it was about 18 years working all the classics, Lion King, Beauty and Davis, um, Little Mermaid, Mulan, Hunchback of Notre Dame, Aladdin, Hercules, Atlantis. Um, yeah, like you said, I mean, that really is the, like, those are the... Those great classics of the yeah. 80s and 90s. Many of them were extraordinary successes. Yeah. We, uh, I mean, 
we bleed our eyes, sort of speak, because the overtime there was really very demanding, but I never minded. It was beautiful to be wanted and to be part of it. So I never recognized anything like holiday in the calendar or uh, vacation. What matters is that they really were appreciating my effort and that we were seeing in dailies what fabulous things were stacking up while doing, say, Lion King or Mulan or, or Hunchback. So it, it got under your skin that you were a little land in a thing that was uh, achieving such great magic for the whole world. Yeah, well, what is it like? Do you do you ever go back and watch that stuff? Do you um, little because over uh, besides uh, the interest I had in the sequences I was part of, um, and then the joy of seeing the whole work finish, the grand opening, the oh, it was very thrilling to all of us, and the all out is goes to show us their gratitude in an outrageous party and congratulations and uh, later on uh, solid congratulations in the form of um, profit sharing even to us little ants it trickled down uh, a few thousand dollars here a few thousand dollars there that was really a tip from the studio for a job well done sharing the profits with us uh, so all of that make it a bit more personal than just going to to a job that you are only one more, uh, you know, those keys in the uh, in the chessboard, a chessboard. Okay. A, you know, you're yeah. not one of piece in the chessboard yeah. that you really they go out of their way to make you feel family, and in some ways they really do conquer your heart. Disney and how they treat their employees. Well, yeah, it's kind of, it's like a, a little bit like a college campus, right? Or like the, the actual environment. True. You have, Joel, yourself done some projects for them, right? Or in part? Oh, I mean, I've, I've gone to a, a couple of screenings at the Disney so lot. Yeah. You have, of the corner of your, your eyes, you'll see in the atmosphere that is breath. breath yeah. Uh, when you walk around the studio. Yeah, right. yeah, that's what it, yeah, there, it, like I said, like, to me, it's a, it's a very, like, college campus vibe, like, it, it's, mm. it's its own, you know. I hear you. So, yeah, what was it, like, so going to work every day, was it, obviously, you're, you're working a lot of hours, you're kind of mm. doing this involved work, but what was the environment, like, for you to, to be there every day? Mm. Because animation is very much, is you and the artwork. Right. Uh, just as long as you have... A few people that know that they have tuned into you and you into them, and where there's that big hug or uh, caring for them in, in some uh, time out every two hours, you know, every job in America today have their 15 or 20 minutes. And this is very necessary in animation to rest your eyes from following lines and uh, screens and whatnot. Uh, so as long as you have your, your small set of, of acquaintances that you feel that you are together, uh, 90% if you really understand what you're there for you abandon yourself to your art work and you go there to pick up from where you are really uh, looking back at what you did in a special project and see what was remaining and just line yourself um, 
for me was very important this lining up myself for the next day to have very good rest the night before to do my 5k running every two or three days a week and to come there in the afternoon fresh and just ready to abandon myself in my so for me uh never was i never look at the clock they they have to say so paulino come on you're not gonna go to bed you're not gonna home tonight (laughs) and uh, i love that the motivation was such that that was the case that i was there for my job yeah for to mix myself with my job not to see that the time passes until my salary check comes in the bank which i think is is sad but it many other people many people in the world have no choice but to subscribe to this form of making a, a living so i consider myself lucky that there are jobs still the in this world and people that let you leave they leave you alone to breathe in that connection to your job where it can become a matter of accomplishing something as opposed to spending time until that check comes in the bank. Well, I'm curious too, because I mean, you know, I I know a bit about um, what's involved. It's very meticulous work, you know, but what, just to get a sense of like, so in a day of animating, like how much would you get done, you know, for the Uh, film? Right, Joel, that depends on how complicated it is, what you have, and how many details you have. Sometimes you're working on some clouds on a romantic scene passing by, and you can do them kind of blindly, or tune into uh, uh, and listen to a book uh, yeah. uh, by Jack Kerouac. <laughs> have him take you on the road via you're listening to it because your hands are pushing all the right keys, and all the right strokes and you get the job done. But uh, comes a scene that you have to correspond. Uh, the value of colors, the last dance scene of uh, the Beauty and the Beast, and you have to correspond. Oh, yeah, the big ballroom. Uh, right on. Yeah. That shining, beautifully dressed, the Beauty and the Beast on the marble floor. I was lucky to be invited to take care of those connections oh, of details. Nice. And nice indeed, but I don't completely, and they left me alone, says Paulino, look into that scene and uh, let us know in uh, several days how things are going. So um, that went very slow. Joel, that <laughs> yeah, to, sure. to, uh, it, it was probably a few, two or three seconds I moved things forward every day yeah. to come to that probably um, a minute or uh, or a minute and 10 or 20 seconds that is that whole scene so i probably was there a few weeks totally lost in it. uh lion king another similar thing so pumba this this <laughs> wonderful animal that likes to eat uh, bugs coming out of a piece of dead um, tree uh, and those all those bugs are in all colors forms uh, and the most charming thing, and you have to follow what uh, what little bag carries what design at what color and to what hole it disappears on through which other hole it appears. Oh, yeah, you have to track, yeah. <laughs> oh, that is a beautiful puzzle to be uh, you lose yourself in, and that it, then come dailies, and they said, oh, this is good. 
not retakes on this. All those bags, they disappear dressed in red. And the one that's supposed to come out dressed in red through the other hall is that one, not now comes dressed in yellow, right and right and right and right. And all those items were just so checked by the um, people that look after uh, giving the green light that the staff then will go into the editing room uh, that you'll get a great satisfaction that they trusted you. It's a very difficult scene. They never really time you like, come on, we need to do or push you. And uh, at the end of the day, you'll see that in many ways, because they left me alone in, for many uh, good reasons, the staff came out all right because there was no pressure. But uh, my connection to the job and then the time to do it. So, yeah, Disney is, is to be applauded for leaving his people alone to do the job. When you can, the stuff you worked on is so iconic. You can see it now that, like, they're making the live action Beauty and the Beast, and it's right. pretty much a recreation. They didn't change anything, that ballroom scene. Like, right. It just, it's just actors, like, recreating True. the stuff. Like, True. that's really, I that had, does that feel like a little surreal for you? Like, what is it like? Do you watch the. It's uh, what you've seen there, and by now, you have lived in this planet long enough, you and Molly. And um, you see that a lot in showbiz uh, works on formula. And animation is uh, a great deal of it is formula. They saw that the formula of putting these ingredients, this character playing against that character, and that the storyline goes this way and that way, and we end up with this kind of uh, cinematic yogurt. It brought us millions this is a good formula. Let's repeat it, but let's do a little twist, a variation. What you just say, live actors and actresses. Why not? It's like uh, our old man, Ronald Reagan says, if something is not broken, don't fix it. <laughs> yeah. It's working. It's working. Reagan knew uh, things of Hollywood. Probably he learned that line himself from working in showbiz. Sure. Disney <laughs> brought in, <laughs> there you are, Disney brought in millions with his original animated, so they apply many of those values, they replicate it with live actors. Well, what I think is, is interesting too about the, the time that you worked is you can kind of <laughs> see a shift too of, and I want to say if my memory is serving me, that Aladdin is the first one I remember that actually incorporated computer animation too, like there's a few sequences in there. Mm. Mm. Uh, but so, and then you could kind of see there was a shift where then like Pixar came along. Right on. Oh, yeah. that, you got a, a good memory there. The, where they shine the computer animation was in the flying rag. Yeah, that's what the I remember. The flying rag was yeah. animated and it had a soul in the studio in awe. Yeah, or what yeah. was coming out of this lab yeah. because it was, as you can imagine, very much experimental stuff. But that the experiments were so such good results that they end up on the screen and for all of you, the audience around the world, to see that flying carpet come yeah. alive. No, I remember, like, I, I think I'm the perfect age that I was a kid when I saw that, and I remember... I'm yeah. sorry, dear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, 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 just helping you. No. Yes, no, yeah, I think you, yeah, we, we eating a little snack here, huh? some nice French cheese, California almonds, and 
Yes, I confess. We are drinking some Sonoma <laughs> Chardonnay a little bit from Northern California. No, you, you and Lourdes have been so lovely to just invite us over today and let us <laughs> try to eat off mic. Uh, well, well, I, I want uh, Nobody says when we're just talking and listening. We are having fun here. <laughs> yes. Well, I want to talk because I one of the things you told me uh, recently when we were just talking that I thought was really interesting is so you, you had this job and you worked very hard at it, but you sort of also had this idea of like getting money saved up and being able to retire young and then right on and then like see the world. Pretty there much. you are. Yes, that, that really stood above Disney after I got all kinds of satisfaction for a job well done and got my own personal satisfaction of knowing that I could look right into a very difficult scene and come out at the other end knowing that that's it, it's done. And it's done, it cannot be improved on what I've done. You do that for um, many years, I believe 18 years. And all, the, all that stuff just starts to wear down and you, your eyes will go, your sense is going to, and what? What's next? And by, by that time, I have been traveling because working for Disney between films, uh, I'll finish a film, say Hunchback or Lion King, and I'll be at LAX after giving my last scene on, could be the very next day, and out to New Zealand or to Zimbabwe or to Egypt, or Pakistan. And uh, so between films, I travel a great deal. Uh, and when uh, I had a sense that my Mickey Mouse dollars were nicely stuck and safe in the bank, then with um, like, <laughs> my heart on my throat says, okay, Paulina, do it. Go and say, I'm done. I'm just gonna take, uh, back the freedom I was born with and I'm done with my working life. I was 47 years old and I told Disney that mm, I'm leaving. Where to? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it turned out that uh, in my travels between films, Asia has just really felt like the, like a, a good glove, a good, perfect fit to to my soul and my being together with mixing with other cultures and Asian cultures in particular. So I uh, moved in Thailand and Japan in a more permanent way. And uh, so that's uh, a beginning of living Disney and living cartoons for being more out there mixing with what by now is 125 countries. And many of them, when I love it, I repeat. When I'm being feel really comfortable with the people, I will return. And I done that many, many times with Japan, Taiwan, China. In Thailand, I end up buying a home with my the wife I met in Spain, and we live there five years. We return there every year now to Thailand. We have a handful of friends there that we love them very much. So Thailand is a permanent in our life now. Like California is permanent also because I stuck up a nice 
social security and motion picture industry retirement. And so I come here to line up a few details now and then to see that my Mickey Mouse dollars keep me happy traveling with my wife. Well, when did, yeah, when did Lourdes come into the picture? How did you, I don't uh, think I've ever asked you. Yeah, it's 2005. I, a Disney colleague told me one day, hey, you born in Spain and in your own country of birth, you have a great adventure you haven't done yet. The Camino de Santiago, 900 kilometers pilgrimage done since the Middle Ages. My aunt's actually walking. See, uh, yeah. right now, Molly's right aunt is in that fabulous fever of co making yourself completely vulnerable and giving yourself to that road that has to give you and does very well give you shelter and food every day and the company of other pilgrims. She's, she's very tightly wound and it has loosened her up a lot. <laughs> Good. <laughs> she met an acupuncturist and did acupuncture the first time in her life. How beautiful. She would never do it before walking that trail. Uh, you all laugh about it. Oh, <laughs> uh, it opened so many windows, right? that pilgrimage. Yeah. My aunt Yola. Yeah. yeah. How beautiful. <laughs> So it was in, on that trip that uh, returning back to uh, Los Angeles, a friend of mine knew that I was happily divorced from a few years, been married to a girl that worked at Disney with me. And he said, oh, don't go back to California be before meeting this lovely Aragon lady named uh, Lourdes. So uh, he brought me to have dinner with this lady and it was really love at first sight. As the saying goes, because we become inseparable. And um, that was 2005, today is 17, so it's 12 years ago that I met Lourdes. And it took uh, no effort to convince her that she loved Asia probably as much as by the time I got to know her a little bit, I knew how, what an open-minded person and kind and interested in other cultures that she is. So soon uh, after hanging around Huesca, this province in the P Spanish Pyrenees, where uh, Lourdes has lived most of her life, then we uh, moved to Thailand and bought ourselves a home and lived there. And... Uh, uh, my honey was invited to film festival, uh, to a performance festival, art festivals, um, Bangkok Arts and Cultural Center, and then she was also asked to do uh, Spanish uh, for uh, the Spa the most highly developed Spanish classes in the University of Bangkok. So it was wonderful to see how. Um, a country so foreign to Lourdes, they could see that she was valuable and interesting and flexible to mix with them. She even gave um, some basic Castilian in the alleys of Pat Pond, the number one place for flesh in Bangkok, Love Girls. And she was invited by an NGO to uh, teach the uh, street girls, uh, Love Girls, there are some basic Spanish so when they have Latin Americans or Spaniards um, in their room that they could defend themselves with few important words like not this way or that hurts or el dinero primero. Uh, and then she taught them also some uh, Hispanic folkloric dance and um, 
we were um, we got the gift to see what beautiful human beings uh, street girls can be, and some of them are in it and happy to be in it, and that which is portrayed to us that love girls is a horrible life. You should listen to some of them say where they come from, from factories where they terribly overwork for peanuts. And now some of them have formed their own clubs. They don't work for a pimp. They manage their own home, their own, uh, they boat, the madam, and they share the money with themselves. And they feel, many of them, that their life have been stimulated by uh, the way uh, some foreigners have treated them, the, the macho culture of Thailand that has keep women really in the everyday life, they, they truly keep them as second citizens in many ways. But they have, they sense that some kind, some form of dignity has come into their lives from getting money uh, and uh, a new freedom they had, that the culture did not offer them any other way. So it's, uh, it became a, a world for us that uh, to be behind the scene and see that it's not all what's been portrayed to us on bleeding hearts, um, churches, and tel uh, documentaries, uh, just exaggerating the gray side of uh, legitimate human beings going to with their lives to see what they can, how they can make ends meet and better themselves yeah no that's definitely yeah a very i'm sure eye-opening experience on uh, this you probably want to know how did we end up making movies there oh yeah yeah, yeah. definitely yeah we got to talk about you uh you becoming international film stars <laughs> recognizing in, in um, um tokyo the streets of bangkok here in downtown la a number of times by total strangers and we realize how wide is the world of the Hmong community in Northern Thailand that many uh, have emigrated here because they helped the United States um, like being scouts for them in the Northern uh, Vietnam mountains and Laos mountains and Cambodia and then the United States returned the favor giving them uh, the privilege of having of getting their green card and residence so uh, these people were well anchored now in American society. They have earned money and gone back to the mountains in Northern Thailand to make films based on the struggles they suffer in the uh, Vietnam War, the struggle they suffer in Northern Thailand, being uh, in some ways second citizens in Thailand, although they are kind to let them have the refugee camps that they turn into a pueblos, villages where the Thai government has brought them water, electricity, schools, churches, uh, because most of them are Catholic Christians, uh, although animistics, uh, uh, true. Um, before the principal American um, preachers come to uh, sell them Jesus Christ and all the other variables that come from from the Catholic uh, Christian world. 
uh, not to criticize that because they are doing a lot of good for these people. Uh, so anyway, I have a friend there, a German, that came to visit us in our home in the countryside, north of Bangkok, and said that a team from St. Paul, Minneapolis, was doing a movie and they needed two white faces, for an anthropologist, and they look at my wife and said, you're perfect for this. My wife says, I'm no actor, said, it's easy to work for us. We did go, they used me as interpreter, but halfway through the movie, they look at me and says, you want to play her husband? At that time, we were not married. We were <laughs> inseparable, but not married yet. So, so I said, I'm no actor. She said, come on, come on. Uh, I need that to be pushed very little. Soon I realized, whoa, the joys of pretending and playing games <laughs> uh, in front of the camera. And they uh, were very patient with me. They let me do uh, not many mistakes, like <laughs> being a fool at first and looking at the camera. <laughs> Fortunately, now I don't see it when we shoot. But at the beginning, it's amazing the, how it magnetizes you, all the instruments that takes place in filming a, a good scene. So um, that was the beginning, how we looked, my wife and I at each other said, this was fun. We can claim forever that we were actors in a movie in the Far East. Only a, a month or two later, we got another phone call, different team, this from Bangkok. They have seen us in the editing room of the previous producers. Said, oh, we need people like you. The two of you are available. And oh, you can imagine that we start to believe that there was something there that we could do another movie. Why not? That was fun, <laughs> the first one. Anyway, to cut to the chase, by now we've done 14 feature films. <laughs> and um, we feel like family with these different teams of, uh, um, that come to do low-budget, B-type movies, some of them romantic comedies, some of them deal with the tragedy of uh, Vietnam War and all the, the pain that it left in so many people in Cambodia, Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, too, in the border with Thailand. And um, it's, uh, uh, it really got under our skin and uh, It's it's beautiful. This is great to be uh, to feel family with someone you didn't know before, but because of what you live together with them, they become more than your real family. Uh, as you listen to their stories, their struggles, and invite you to portray so much pain that before you know it, so. You are feeling that pain, uh, even if it's for a short time. And so uh, we we eternally grateful for these people to invite us into their lives. And to have us uh, um, be part of portraying their history in Southeast Asia and now how they successfully embrace what great opportunities America can give to immigrants. Uh, I believe they have now a congressman from the Hmong community. He is in Washington, D.C. And uh, 
we uh, we applaud them and uh, love them very much and we've seen them from earlier on beginning to film to now we see how they are visibly you we can see from every new trip we take to thailand that they are bettering themselves they are making the most of what thailand the thailand hospitality and now they come to america and before you know they have their kids going to university and their second generation Mon people are uh, something to reckon with at how well they apply themselves to make the most of their education system here and the other good things that American democracy is, is clearly better than most democracies in the world. At allowing people that come out of nowhere and with nothing, but the clothes they, they wear and give them a hand to see what's available for them. So, uh, yeah, two things here that has to be recognized. A, a great community people that have suffered, that have not, still today don't have a home. It's like the Kurds, uh, in, they are in northern Iraq, they are in Turkey, they cannot claim anything that is their home. The Mon people today, they originated generations ago from the southern mountains of China, migrated to northern Laos, northern Vietnam, northern Thailand, and uh, they never lost their roots, their uh, teachings from their parents. Much of that culture is by word of mouth. Grandmother passed it on to the grandmother and to the daughters and to the... And um, it's beautiful how they maintain in a life today. And the other people I want to reckon here is the American system in welcoming people like me first come here illegally and they uh, saw that, yes, I apply myself to do, be the best I could do for what they offer me to do. And, uh, and today, uh, America will remain uh, the biggest, my big, strongest identity to my life is how California gave me the opportunity to better my life. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, um, you've been super generous with your time and, uh, but, you know, we'll go ahead and wrap up, but I, I do want to talk to you. I know that you're, uh, we're, we're getting ready to lose you. You're, you're getting ready to, mm, to move. It's, yeah. The Canary Islands is yeah. our next destination. We lived there for a while before Yarrow Island, the smallest of this archipelago of six, six, seven islands, uh, just about the number of islands you guys have in Hawaii, also volcanic uh, origin although a different volcanic activity than the uh, Hawaiian ones. Um, and is there that we go back after uh, several months here that my honey got a serious disease uh, immune system. We came from a second opinion and we're returning there to uh, this wild, beautiful island with just one street light in the whole island, about 5,000 people, one of the purest waters surround the island that can be found lab analysis demonstrated anywhere in the world and um, the condition of my honey now is asking that the wise thing is to be in a quiet place with abundant nature and we already have a handful of people that love us very much so the decision it was very easy to then uh, 
get all the wonderful information that the motion picture industry health system has given us on this disease and uh, take a step back from asking miracles from medicine and just go on uh, living more slow now less travel and more inward like it corresponds we are getting older it's a good time to uh, contemplate and meditate on this like the Grateful Dead said a strange trip what a great strange trip this has been life that's how you got your, your animation jobs, right? <laughs> Just contemplating all that. <laughs> how sweet, how sweet, Molly. Right on. Yes, um, I wish you all a great trip in this adventure of life in this fabulous planet we have, we call Earth. Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful that we cross paths and that <laughs> we've gotten to know you these past few months. Mm. Like... It really, you two are such a wonderful presence and we are going to miss you. So mm. thank you for, you know, for doing this and for everything. And Nice to have you as neighbors. Yeah, no, you've been great. Molly and Joel, uh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, you brought smiles to us and uh, you walk in us, you wake up in us. Um, we never had children. But when this, we see the two of you that are having your own delicate issues with the health of Molly, uh, it's been beautiful to see um, the father and mother that resides in, Lour in Lourdes, my wife and me. When we see the two of you uh, balancing an equilibrium with everyday life because of the chronic illness of Molly. So... Um, Thank you for letting us pet you, give you a big hug here and there, and uh, cheer you up and show you how we, much older than you guys are, we <clears throat> refuse to be a stay put, but go on embracing life and just do it differently because of uh, the considerations that have, been taken, have to be taken into account every day for Lourdes. Yeah, no, I think it's been really powerful for us to see you guys and to you know sort of see you as older versions mm, of God us beautiful. yeah slightly oh, yeah. older not much older. Mm. <laughs> we do we, we love and uh yeah. to uh, be um as if we were um in the same phase of our lives which which we are not 50s my wife me 60s and you guys are in your 20s 30s. and 30s yeah and to sit here or to be together as we've done other times and to know that we are together and it doesn't enter at all that we are in two very different way, uh, phases of life but what matters is that we have interesting things to share and enthusiasm for life and wishing more uh, of what it means um, loving this time on earth Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. You made me cry a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, good cry. <laughs> I'm sorry, dear. I could have talked to that guy for so much longer. I feel like 
in an hour i got i feel like i just scratched the surface of his life and i i hope you guys got a sense of who he is and why molly and i love him so much and love lorda so much and will miss them so much as they embark on this new adventure in their life but hopefully you guys enjoyed it and uh if you did and this is maybe your first time go go check out the archives listen to some other interviews and such uh but that's gonna do it for me this week so remember kids don't do drugs or you go to hell before you die He's a prima donna. When he's on the set, woof, he's full of demands. He's full of demands. <laughs> what do you? It doesn't matter. I just walk around the house doing whatever I want when he's recording. Lourdes, somebody's laughing here on the set. <laughs> Call security. Okay. Hobo Radio is a production of Hobotrashcan.com. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or review it on iTunes. Hear more great shows on the Peak Sloth Podcast Network, like this one. 
Hi everyone, I'm Jessica Hinken. I'm Laura Wexler, and we're the hosts of the Stoop Storytelling Series podcast. We are a podcast in which you can hear true personal stories that are... Sad. Happy. Funny. Itchy. There's no itchy stories. Why did you say sad twice? Because we gravitate towards sadness. That's not true. It's very fun. You can download us on stoopstorytelling.com or iTunes, and you can also find us at the Peak Sloth Podcast Network. Thanks for listening.